Bombers Basketball. Welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Jacob Birkinshaw, and this week we're going to be looking at why tanking doesn't work. Let's get into it. So, before we get started, support for the overstated is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below the waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, plus the three hosts of this podcast. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners, 20% off plus free shipping with the code OVERSTATED. That's O-V-E-R-S-T-A-T-E-D at manscaped.com. Again, that's 20% off, plus free shipping with the code OVERSTATED at manscaped.com. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Now let's get into the episode. So, into the episode proper now. We are going to be looking at why tanking doesn't work. Now originally, this episode was going to be called Does Tanking Work? But it became very clear very quickly it doesn't and it became pretty clear with a bit more digging why it doesn't and we're going to get into that right now but i just wanted to put that out there from the jump just just i don't want this to be a big song and dance i want you all to know where i stand on this maybe you feel differently maybe you think tanking is an excellent tool maybe you think sam hinky is right i mean he's far more intelligent than i am so he's probably knows a bit more about this than me. He's probably done a lot more research than me and a lot more advanced research than me. But from what I've done, it's pretty cut and dry. Tanking is not the method to win championships or to reach finals or to be a successful team. We are going to be measuring this by championships and finals. That's going to be a basic measuring stick because that's why you tank. You don't tank because you want to have a 50-win team or a 55-win team and get bounced in the conference semifinals. You tank because you want the generational superstar, the LeBron James, the Tim Duncan, the insert Shaq, you know, David Robinson, etc., etc. You tank because you want those players to come to your team to build title contenders around and hopefully win championships. That's the only real reason teams tank. So that is what I'm going to be using. Obviously, teams are bad because they're bad and that it's difficult to divide teams that intentionally lose games against teams that just lose games because of an incompetent franchise so what i did let's let's go through the methodology i used my database of all teams in nba history going back to 1955 i eliminated the last 10 years of history, because you'll see why in a second, which took it down to 1,155 teams. In those 1,155 teams, 186 of them won 25 or less games in a year per 82. So what I mean, they may have played 70 games in that season. You know, it may be like the 2012 lockout year or the 99 lockout year. Their win percentage was, I think it's 30.5%, so it's about 30%. Their win percentage was lower 
or as the same as a 25-win team in an 82-game season, I consider that the cutoff point for tanking. Like I said, there are 186 of those such seasons in NBA history going back to 1955. What I then did is I looked at, right, how many of those teams reached the finals within 10 years? How many of those teams reached multiple finals within 10 years? How many of those teams won finals within 10 years? How many of those teams won multiple finals within 10 years? And then I did the same for what is the average for every team, not just the tanking teams, but for any team. And then obviously from that, if I have how many of everyone did it, how many tanking teams did it, I have how many non-tanking teams did it. And from there, it paints a very, very clear picture, um, which we'll get into in a second. But just then from that, I thought, right, there's a very clear um, statistical argument that tanking doesn't work. So let's look at some individual tank jobs. Let's look at some hypothetical tank jobs. Say you got five number three picks in a row, or you got five number five picks in a row, or you got pick one, two, three, four, and five in consecutive drafts. So one draft, you get pick one, second draft, pick two, because obviously that's more realistic. You don't just get five number three picks in a row. Then I wanted to look at some actual real-life examples of tanking and non-tanking. We're going to be looking at the Lakers tank job just when they were terrible. So like 2014 to 2019, what picks they had, what players they should have gotten from those picks, that kind of stuff. We're going to be doing the same for the Warriors tank job because I think they're, they're a very interesting case study. We're going to be doing the same for, obviously, we couldn't do this without touching on the Philadelphia tank job and what that was. And that's, I think, a very interesting one. And that's really indicative of this whole experiment and why tanking doesn't work, which you might disagree with because obviously they have Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. We'll get into that. And then finally, we're going to be looking at the Spurs, who are almost like the anti-tank team, which is weird because they also are the ultimate tank team because they tanked two years and got David Robinson and Tim Duncan. So they're also so they have they're playing with um, house money here because they they really nailed a couple tank jobs, which set them up for decades, realistically. But in recent years, we're going to go through their recent drafts and some historical data from Berkeley University and look at why the Spurs kind of show what you should be doing instead of tanking. So that's the that's kind of the running order for this episode. Just wanted to give you a basic rundown because you're going to realize quite quickly that tanking doesn't work from this. But we'll get into that now. So the odds of a team, like I'm going to be throwing numbers at you, so please pay attention to them. If you are watching on YouTube, though, these numbers will just be up on the screen for you. So please go check us out on YouTube, by the way. Uh, Brett dropped an incredible kind of mini doc. He Obviously, he writes amazing articles. He turned one of those amazing articles into a kind of mini documentary about Latrell Sprewell, which is riveting. Like, it's an amazing... Obviously, I knew of Latrell Sprewell. It was before my time or when I was very, very young, like way too young to know what basketball was. And it's it's an amazing story. He's got loads of them, honestly, and I hope he puts out more because they're awesome. And a mini part of the podcast that was meant to come out on Monday 
but the audio and visual files were corrupted, so only a small amount of it could be saved. So we threw it up on our YouTube channel because we want you guys to go subscribe to the YouTube, the Overstated. We're going to be putting out a lot of content through there because, you know, we want it has a wider audience. It helps us reach more people. So please go subscribe. But for those of you that do, you will be able to see this data in front of you so you don't have to really pay much attention. You can just look at the screen when you need to. We're going to go through the percentage chances that these teams will reach finals, win titles, reach multiple finals, win multiple titles in the 10 years after a given season. So what are the odds that a tank team will reach a final within 10 years of winning 25 games? What are the odds? About 17%. The odds are about 17% that a team will the team that won 25 or less games in a year will go on to win a title, reach a final in the next 10 years. Sorry if I misconstrued that. It's reach a final in the next 10 years. 17% chance a team that wins 25 or less games does that. For all teams, it's about 40%. And for non-tank teams, teams that did not lose less than 25%, lose, well, no, It'd be like the one more than 25 games, if I can structure my sentences correctly, it's about a 45% chance that that team will reach a finals within the next 10 years of that given season. That's pretty great odds. That's like a nearly a 50-50 chance. Whereas for a team that won 25 or less games, it's less than one in five. Now, to reach multiple finals, a tank team has about a 6% chance to reach multiple finals within 10 years of winning 25 or less games. That's very low. Not really going to happen. For all teams, it's about 24%. And for non-tank teams, it's about 27% chance. So a pretty good odds, realistically. If I told you, you know, the Portland Trailblazers, just as a random example of a team. Now, these all get skewed by particular teams the Celtics and the Lakers I think I think they skew these data sets slightly but we are trying to look at just randomly throw just a random dart at a year for a team it could be any team it could be any year what are the odds they're going to reach multiple finals within 10 years and winning how much they win and lose in that given year can tell us quite a lot it looks like because these aren't that small samples these are 186 teams that tanked versus 969 nice that didn't so they're quite they're not similar size samples but they're both quite strong sample sizes and for non-tank teams there's a 27 percent chance that they will reach multiple finals within 10 years of that non-tanked season now interestingly as well winning a title is the exact same odds it's the exact same number so a tank team, a team that wins 25 or less games, has about a 6% chance of winning a title within 10 years of that season. For everyone else, it's the same. It's um, about 24%. And for a non-tank team, it's about 27%. So if you're not winning less than 20, 25 or less games in a year, you have about a 27% chance that you're going to win a title within the next 10 years. Which, for some of these teams that you might consider hopeless, 
that's that's pretty that's pretty good odds, I think, for these kind of middle of the pack teams that maybe are winning 40, 42 games, forty five games, thirty five games. That's these are you know the odds are pretty good actually that you're gonna win a title, considering how what gold dust titles are, and then if we go to teams that win multiple titles in a year, in a year, in a decade. Um, for teams that win 25 or less games in a season, they have about a 3% chance to win multiple titles within 10 years. This has only happened five times. I'm trying to think who they are off the top of my head. Can't remember exactly who they are, but you're winning multiple titles. So it's, you know, it's the San Antonio Spurs um, of 1997 did it. I'm trying to think who else. Did the Boston Celtics have one in the late 70s? I think that might have been another one. There's been five. Five cases where a team won less 25 or less games in a year and within 10 years had won multiple titles. It's happened five times in NBA history and it works out about a 3% chance. For everyone else, for everyone, it's about 11%. And for teams that don't tank, it's about 13% chance. So that's a lot to throw at you if you're just listening to it. Those are a lot of numbers to throw at you. But it should have become quite clear that the odds of a tank team going on to reach finals, win finals, multiple finals and championships, they're a lot lower than teams that haven't tanked that season. If I just go by kind of the odds... um, a team that tanks has about 37% chance to reach the finals compared to uh, a team that doesn't tank. So if I compare two teams, like the odds, if if the um, if the non-tank team is 100, the tank team is 37%. So it's like a third the chance that a tank team reaches the finals in 10 years than a non-tank team. For reaching multiple finals or winning a title, it's about a quarter the chance, which is crazy small. And then for winning for winning multiple titles, it's about one in five chance compared to a team which doesn't tank. So across the board, across quite large sample sizes, there's a very clear pattern developing here that teams that tank or teams that lose a lot of games have a much, much tougher road to win a title, to reach a finals within the next 10 years than teams that haven't tanked or aren't bad. That's something I should, you know, swap those in. Teams that are bad, teams that tank, um, for the purposes of this exercise, they're basically the same thing. You get teams that are going to get high draft picks. I think it's probably the best descriptor for them. Teams that are going to get high draft picks because they won 25 or less games, the odds that they're going to win a title within the next 10 years are, you know, a quarter of a team that hasn't done that, are one-fifth of a team which hasn't done that, are a third of the team that hasn't done that. It's a very, very small amount by comparison. And that's just the nature, I think. And that that, that makes sense in the sense that if a team is bad, odds are it's a bad team and odds are that a bad team is going to stay bad and that a bad team isn't going to use their draft picks correctly or that a bad team has further to climb 
to win a win a title than a team which is winning 35 games or 45 games or even 55 games and obviously some of these teams won titles anyway they were championship teams and those teams are more likely to then repeat as champions not incredibly likely to repeat or to win in our title but generally generally speaking teams that are really good they don't just reach a, a finals and win or reach a finals and do nothing else like think of teams like the new jersey nets in the mid 2000s the early 2000s they reached a couple of finals um the new york knicks in the 90s reached a couple of finals even though the second one was crazy the detroit pistons in the 2000s reached a couple of finals like very few teams do what toronto did where they had the Kawhi year they just made one finals they won it and given the nature of the team or the way the team's going probably not gonna win for a while they might shut me up in the next few years you know they uh what are the odds they could assuming they're not tanking this year they got like a 27 percent chance of uh winning a title in the next 10 years as a non-tank team that's uh you know going full circle there using the data against myself and supporting Toronto. You're welcome, Canadians. So those are the odds that these teams are going to win titles, reach finals, if they're tanking versus if they're not tanking. So we can see very clearly teams that tank are actually less likely to win. Teams that accrue high draft picks are actually less likely to do any of these impressive kind of the stuff that goes up on your basketball reference page of you know finals reached title wins all that kind of stuff you know whose names get engraved on the the wikipedia page for the nba finals all that kind of stuff you, that's a lot less likely if you are tanking if you are losing a lot of games that's much less likely that's going to happen within 10 years and for you guys on youtube You'll have this data in front of you. You can just see. You, you've by now probably read it 10 times. You can see exactly what those odds are. They're not good. They're just not good. Now, let's hit up some hypothetical kind of draft pick ideas. So we can start to unpick why all this tanking, all this terrible basketball, which is getting us really high draft picks, why is that not producing championships generally speaking compared to the teams that are just playing are just trying to win every year are reaching modest win totals to actual 60 70 win juggernaut teams those type of teams compared to the teams that are tanking out that are getting top five top three number one picks why are those teams not going on to win more championships if they're the ones who are getting the best players every year. Well, we'll, t we'll hit a few hypotheticals. So I just chose kind of random draft years. I chose random five-year stretches. Um, I tried to go back a bit, not do recent ones, a little bit, not like really far, just in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, just so we had a better idea of how these players' careers actually developed. So rather than being like, right, you have the number four pick in this year well that became jaron jackson jr a couple of years ago or whatever we don't really know what he is yet we don't know if he's an all-star level player 
We don't know if he's going to be a starter. We don't know if he's going to get injured and completely derail his career. So I went back. So let's do from 2010 to 2014, five years of drafting. What if you had the number three pick every single year? You wouldn't, obviously, because assuming you get some of these players, hopefully you get better after having the number three pick every year. But also, you you just you just wouldn't. That would be an incredible situation. But if you did have the number three pick every year for those five years, you would be expected. Now, I should really hit on this. I developed, go back to an earlier pod, how much is a draft pick worth? I developed kind of using as much data as I could um, and my own personal proprietary data plus basketball reference data plus thinking basketball data plus draft express data. I combined all that together and I tried to give an idea of, right, what are the odds that draft pick X is going to become an all-star or better? What are the odds that they won't even be a backup level player? They won't even be a rotation player. What are the odds they'll be an MVP or better? What are the odds they'll be a starter level player, but not an MVP, you know, all that stuff. Go back, listen to it. I developed a whole um, kind of probability spectrum for those draft picks. If I had five number three draft picks, the expectations, generally speaking, this is all just probabilities. I would get one All-NBA player. I would get one All-Star player. I would get two starters and I would get one backup. That's what you should expect on average with five number three picks. The third pick in the draft over five years. For the 2010 to 2014 range, that means you would have picked up Derek Favors, Enos Cantor, Bradley Beal, Otto Porter, and Joel Embiid. Now, we can argue about who fits where in this. You know, Joel Embiid clearly the best player in that lot. He's a clearly, clearly an all-NBA plus player. Bradley Beal, clearly an all-star and better player. Derek Favors, Otto Porter, Enos Kanter, you can argue, are they starters? Are they backups? Whatever. That's just a random sampling of a five-year stretch of number three picks. And would that team... Now, I've had five number three picks in a row. Is that team good enough to challenge with maybe some free agent signings with um you know getting some other luck on like a second round pick or something is that team good enough to win a championship certainly I think Joel Embiid and Bradley Beal are very interesting tandem I think you'd need something else though and I'm not sure Otto Porter Derek Favors and Enos Kanter are really going to add much to that team especially when for some reason you've drafted three centers or three power forward slash centers doesn't really make a lot of sense, but hey, it's your hypothetical draft. Obviously, this team is not championship, championship level. And then when you take a step further back, let's go to if you had five number five picks, and we're going to go from 2005 to 2009. So that five number five picks, you would expect to get one all-NBA player. You'd expect to get three players either two starters and a backup or one starter and two backups kind of it flips between those two so the probabilities it's about yeah basically you have like 150 percent chance of a starter with five number five picks and 150 percent chance of a backup 
So, you know, it could be two starters and a backup, two backups and a starter. And then you'd expect one non-factor. So that's a player who would not even make the top eight of a roster. And those number five picks from 2005 to 2009 are Raymond Felton, Sheldon Williams, Jeff Green, Kevin Love, and Ricky Rubio. So you've got Kevin Love. That's an all-NBA player, I think it's fair to say. Jeff Green and Ricky Rubio, fair starters, maybe. Then you've got Raymond Felton and Sheldon Williams. You can decide for yourself whether you think they're backups or non-factors. That's up to you. But obviously, this team is not winning a championship. This team isn't getting close. This team is basically what the Timberwolves were around that time but maybe probably a bit worse as well than what the Timberwolves were. And you've just had five number five picks in a row, which is entirely possible, especially nowadays, it's entirely possible for you to have five number five picks in a row, um, even if you're trying to be the worst team. It's entirely possible maybe you're the second worst team one year, the third worst team another year, the worst team in a third year, and you just get stiffed in the draft lottery. This is entirely possible. For you to get five number five picks. I think I think Orlando has had like three number sevens out of the last four drafts. And um the Lakers, did they have I think they had three number two picks in a row. So this stuff can happen. It's very unlikely, but it can happen. And this is what you would get from those five picks. Not even close to being a title contender. You're back in the lottery for the rest of the decade, and that's that ten year window gone for you so let's go to maybe something a bit more interesting because obviously teams they don't just draft generally speaking they don't just draft the same pick every year so let's do a range um we're going to do 2000 to 2004 in 2000 you get the first pick 2001 you get the second pick 2003 you get the third pick so we're going to go from 2005 to 2009 In 2005, you get the first pick. 2006, you get the second pick. 2007, you get the third pick. 2008, you get the fourth pick. And in 2009, you get the fifth pick. So who did you get? You'd expect to get one All-NBA player, one All-Star player, and then three players who are starters slash backups. So two starters and a backup, two backups and a starter. Who who did you get? 2005-2009. You got Andrew Bogut, who is you know, one of the lesser number one picks, but it happens all the time. Uh, you got LaMarcus Aldridge, very good. Al Horford, very good. Russell Westbrook, wow. And Ricky Rubio. So you actually overperformed your draft odds with those five picks. If you did that, you got, say, a clear all-NBA player at his prime in Russell Westbrook, LaMarcus Aldridge and Al Horford, probably all-star value, at their peak, Andrew Bogut and Ricky Rubio, probably starters at their peak level. So you've outperformed what you'd expected. You would expect it to get an all-NBA player, an all-star player, maybe a couple starters and a backup or a couple backups and a starter. You've done better than that. You've got an all-NBA player, two all-stars and two starters. Now, you probably want to rejig that roster around, but just think that's team say I had that team going into 2010 through to you know when the team inevitably breaks down gets traded because they aged out signs with other teams in free agency 
let's say I rejig that team a little bit as well, just to because I've got Westbrook and I've got Rubio. Probably going to trade Rubio eventually because I don't want that backcourt really together. Mm, they might be all right defensively. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I'm the GM of this team. Really, you want a wing, so either Lamarcus Aldridge or Al Horford needs to go. Um, Bogut, you stay as the center. He's a good defensive, good playmaking center. Very intelligent player. He can stay as the starting center. I would probably, being a basketball hipster, I probably want Al Horford more in my roster than Lamarcus Aldridge. I probably want to trade Aldridge for assets, maybe a three and a two in terms of like positionally, a small forward and a shooting guard if possible, one or the other at high level, three and D, and build a team around them. Do I think a team led by Russell Westbrook, maybe I sign a good shooting guard to complement him in free agency. I trade LaMarcus Aldridge for a quality 3 and D um, small forward. I have Al Horford at the power forward slot in his prime, and I have Andrew Bogut um, in his short-lived prime, admittedly, at the center position. Would that team... And I've outperformed my draft odds. Would that team go on to win a championship in the next five years? Probably not. I'd, I'm trying to think of a year. You got, you know, obviously the Thunder wouldn't make the finals, but teams like Dallas, San Antonio, they were still very good. Obviously, then the Warriors come up. Between San Antonio and the Warriors, this team doesn't really have a chance in the West. And in the East, you've got LeBron. So. Good luck there, Westbrook and Horford and Bogut. You're great players, but good luck making the finals out east, getting through Le Miami and Le Cleveland. Yeah, this team would not make the finals, I don't think. And I've just had a number one pick, a number two pick, a number three pick, a number four pick, and a number five pick, and I've outperformed my pick expectations across that time. That's how tough this is. So those are just hypothetical equations of draft pick value. Let's look at reality. Let's look at what actually happened. So the LA Lakers, from 2014 to 2019, six-year stretch, they had three number two picks. They had a number four pick, a number seven pick, and the number 25 pick. They had a load of second-round picks as well. Let's not worry about them for the time being. Between all of this, you'd expect one All-NBA player, an All-Star player, a mix of two starters and a backup, two backups and a starter, and one non-factor. Now, with those picks, they got Julius Randle, D'Angelo Russell, Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Mo Wagner, and DeAndre Hunter. Those That's pretty good overall, I think. Maybe... They didn't find that all-NBA player. Maybe Brandon Ingram will become that all-NBA player or Julius Randle if he continues to improve. But they found, certainly I think with Ingram, you know, Randle, D'Angelo Russell technically was an all-star, but I don't think he was ever an all-star quality player. Lonzo Ball's a good player. DeAndre Hunter looks very promising, definitely a starter-level player. They certainly drafted five starters, which is more than you'd expect. Certainly. And then maybe they don't get the All-NBA player, but Ingram probably has All-NBA potential. Randall's an All-Star, so they expected two All-Stars. They probably got on two All-Stars. 
they expected maybe one or two stars and they probably got three stars and then they expected a backup and a non-factor they got mo wagner who maybe he ends up being a non-factor maybe he ends up being a backup it's either a draw of uh, against your expectations or it's an improvement on your expectations so overall the lakers have probably probably outperformed their draft position in this time frame they had three number two picks a number four pick a number seven pick and a number 25 pick and would that team win a title even with shifting it around d'angelo russell lonzo ball brandon ingram deandre hunter and julius randall at the five ish you know maybe we'll sign a five in free agency there's there are a dime a dozen uh, for a standard five that's that's a really nice team that's a really frisky team I don't know what their ceiling is, but I kind of like it. Just it should be really interesting to watch. But obviously, that team isn't coming close to winning a title, and that was quite a strong tank job from the Lakers in that period. Now the Lakers are an interesting one because they had this long period of tanking, but then they kind of they got lucky in free agency because they're the Lakers, so they made their own luck. LeBron wanted to come to LA and then they shifted a lot of these assets that they got through tanking to get one superstar player which also that happens sometimes like um uh, the, the Pistons in the early 80s they drafted you know Isaiah they outperformed their draft position they drafted some great players later on which is really much, much more likely to win you a title, getting players like Joe Dumas with the 18th pick and Dennis Rodman with the whatever pick it was, like 27th or something, something like that. And then getting guys like, they got like Kelly Trapuka and they traded him for Adrian Dantley and other stuff. There's other stuff involved, but Trapuka for Dantley. Uh, and then as well, they ended up turning that as well into Mark Aguirre, who chemistry-wise worked better with that team than Adrian Dantley did so it's a it's an interesting thing does that count as a tank in that they they used the assets they got through being bad to acquire better players so they kind of they won trades outside of just tanking and i think that's something as well that we're going to come to later is way way more important than it gets recognized for is the fact that getting plus value through your trades is a way to, or getting negative value through your trades is a way to either greatly enhance your draft stock, your tank job, or it's a great, it's a great way to destroy the good work, your scouting department and the players who had to go out there and lose for 82 games. It's destroying all their great work. If you then make trades that severely limits your success, this happens all the time. The, the opposite happens as well. Like I said, the Lakers were able to transition Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, DeAndre Hunter technically was involved in that trade. Josh Hart, who was a solid player they picked up with a later pick, they were able to turn those into Anthony Davis. Whether you count that as them tanking and them doing a successful tank job is more of a philosophical point. I count it. Because, you know, they were using the assets they accrued through tanking to create a great team that won a championship. It's up to you, though, how you feel about that.
Now let's look on something completely different, and that is the Golden State Warriors quote-unquote tank job from 2009 to 2012. So for this, I went to... um, I looked at every single draft pick they had. In that time, 2009 to 2012, they had a number six pick, two number seven picks, the 11th, the 30th, the 35th, the 42nd, and the 50th. From those picks, you would expect them to get either one All-NBA slash All-Star player, like one All-Star or better player. You'd expect them to, like we keep seeing, two starters and a backup or two backups and a starter. And you would expect them to get four non-factors. So we're looking at four draft picks hitting to different extents and four draft picks completely failing. Now, depending how you feel about Ekpe Udo, they did get four non-factors. I think I think Ekpe Udo is a non-factor realistically. I don't even, I wouldn't classify him as a backup personally. But then you'd expect kind of a backup, two starters, and an all-star. Those four players ended up being Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, and Harrison Barnes. Harrison Barnes is realistically a starter-level player, and Clay Thompson slides somewhere between All-NBA and All-Star, Draymond Green, All-NBA, and Steph Curry above MVP. So... They've basically every single one of those four picks relatively like when when I said four players should be backup starters and all-stars, every single one of those overperformed what they should have been. They overdrafted for their position and it's one of the great overdrafting um, kind of runs in NBA history. Obviously, you have uh, the, the OKC run is the greatest run of drafts in NBA history of Durant, Westbrook, and Harden. That is the greatest run. But this one obviously produced a lot more success long-term than them. And they did it with a lot worse picks as well. Like I said, they never had a top five pick. They had a six, two sevens, and an 11th are the only lottery picks they had. Then they had a 30th, 35th, 42nd, and 50th, so a few second rounders that became nothing, plus Draymond Green. The Warriors overperformed their draft position, and that's something that isn't really replicable, but it also shows you another facet of this why tanking doesn't work. And we'll get into why it doesn't work a bit later, or we'll wrap up all these conclusions, but it comes down to the fact that you are relying on too much luck. You're relying on lottery luck, and then you're relying on overperforming your draft position. You're relying on drafting an all-NBA player where you should maybe look to be getting a starter-level player. You're drafting an MVP where maybe you should look to get an all-star, or even worse than that, or you're drafting a starter where you should be getting a non-factor. These are what leads to dynastic teams like the Golden State Warriors, like the San Antonio Spurs, like um, not to to say they're dynastic, but they keep overperforming draft expectations. The Toronto Raptors are another one. That shows, and I think there's a common thread there that we'll get into, but that shows why tanking is so inconsistent and so unsuccessful. 
that you need a lot of luck involved, which is both outside your control and to certain extents inside your control, but is also not incredibly likely if you're the type of team to win 25 or less games in a year. We'll get into it later. First, let's look at the Philadelphia 76ers legendary tank job, the tank job. So I'm not going to get into all the picks they had. I'm just going to say between 2014 and 2018, which is kind of when I consider the start and the end of the tank, it's from Sam Hinkie's first draft, first proper, proper draft, until the last draft before they signed, they traded for Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler. And then 2019, obviously, they go for it. Kawhi Leonard beats them with the Game 7 buzzer beater in the conference semifinals, blah, blah, blah. That's the end of the tank. They're not tanking in 2019. They're going for it. They had 27 draft picks in that time. Um, It's tough to represent. So I would expect them to get half an MVP. They got like a 50-50 shot at an MVP in those 27 picks. They have the odds of getting one All-NBA player, one All-Star player, about two and a half starters, five role players, and 17 non-factors, which, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. 27 draft picks. You would expect 17 of those 27 to become not even role players in the NBA. Then half of them become role players, half of those become starters, and then one becomes an all-star, one becomes an all-NBA player, and then you've got a 50-50 shot on MVP. So who did they actually get out of it? Well, they probably underperformed. In fact, they definitely underperformed um, those draft picks. They got Joel Embiid, who I think it's fair to say he's above all-NBA. You can put him in an MVP discussion if you want. So they nailed that. And they got Ben Simmons, who's realistically an all-NBA player. And... Some I even saw a discussion thread in our Facebook group today that is he defensive player of the year? Maybe it's an interesting debate to have. They got make uh, Mikhail Bridges, who is right now clearly a starter level player. They drafted Jeremy Grant, clearly a starter level player and above. Both these guys I think are better than starter level players, but I wouldn't put them all stars yet. Uh, Landry Shamet, Alfred Payton, Rashawn Holmes, Markel Fultz who's obviously a very interesting one, and Willie Hernan Gomez, who's kind of on the bubble of is he a role player or not. All those guys I would put in role player categories. Maybe you'd say, maybe you think Markel Fultz is a starter. Maybe you think Rashawn Holmes is a starter. I don't know. But they're kind of on the bubble. And those guys are the nine players that they got from those 27 draft picks that were real factors in the NBA. How many of those did they actually turn into positive value? Well, obviously, they kept Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. So those two, the two best players out of the whole thing, well done. You kept them. Unfortunately, obviously, you drafted maybe two the two least compatible top 15 to 20 players in the NBA. Of all the top 15 to top 20 players in the NBA, I don't think there are any two that are less compatible than these two. Although Joel Embiid is doing his darndest this year by shooting the, the lights out to make them compatible. Anyway, you kept those two. That's great. You kept your two best players and you nailed the two players, the top players that you wanted to get. So in that sense, you can argue it's not a failure. Then you go down, you get Mikael Bridges. They traded him for Zaya Smith, who hasn't played this year, and a 2021 first. 
We don't know who's that going to be. I think it's the odds are in their favor that they lost that draw, that um, trade. Jeremy Grant, they traded for what is now Ersanilia Sova and the pick that became Tyrese Maxey for Jeremy Grant. Both those, those are probably the third and fourth best players you drafted in this time frame, and you traded them for what's basically at this point is Tyrese Maxey and a first for Mikhail Bridges and Jeremy Grant. Landry Shamet became a big part of the trade that landed them Tobias Harris. I'm not going to pull... I, I think that's a good trade. Ultimately, I think that's a positive value trade. you got Tobias Harris, who's an excellent player, playing really well this year. I'd say overall, no, no harm, no foul. Good trade. I'll give that a green light. Alfred Payton, you traded for Darius, what became Dario Saric, Willie Hernan Gomez, and Landry Shamet. Landry Shamet and Willie Hernan Gomez ended up on this list. We drafted, you um, got the picks that became Willie Hernan Gomez and Landry Shamet. That's why they ended up on this list and Dario Saric didn't because you got Dario Saric. Uh, you didn't draft him with a pick specifically. But again, green light, good trade. Alfred Payton for Saric, Willie Hernan Gomez and Landry Shamet. It's a bit of just role players for role players, but you turned Alfred Payton into three solid role players. Good job. Rashawn Holmes, really quality, quality player, quality role player. You traded him for cash. That's it. That's all I'm going to say on that because Jesus Christ. Markel Fultz is the weirdest story in NBA history. Ultimately, he's traded for nothing. It's tough to say, do you want to put that on Philly? But it's like, Philly, you tanked to get these picks. You tanked to get the... They got the third pick, and then they traded um, the third plus what became the 14th pick for the number one pick. You angled yourself to get Markel Fultz. You were bad to get Markel Fultz, and this is what he became. So you failed there, and that's kind of as well. Those, those odds, the chances of why tanking doesn't work because of things like that happen with number one picks it's obviously much less likely but that stuff happens with high draft picks all the time and then finally Willie Hernan Gomez who's kind of on the bubble here they traded him for second round picks for nothing ultimately so out of all of this they got Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons most of what they end up using for Tobias Harris and that's basically it that's all they got from all this tank job. And Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are lovely. They may well end up winning a title and they may well make this Philly tank season, these, whatever it was, four or five years of being in a tank, they may well join the list of teams who tanked that ends up winning a title. But they had 27 draft picks and they underperformed those draft picks. And then the ones they did hit on, like Mikhail Bridges and Jeremy Grant, Rashawn Holmes, they traded away for pennies on the dollar. Now, they didn't, they did get Landry Shamet, or Alfred Payton became Saric, Hernan Gomez, Landry Shamet. Landry Shamet became part of the Tobias Harris trade. So it's it's all a bit nebulous there, but. Tobias Harris came out of this as well, so let's not completely poo-poo it. But this is why the draft, in a vacuum, we can't just look at it. Because then you need to make decisions 
about what you're going to do with these players you drafted. Are you going to trade them for fucking cash like Rashawn Holmes? Are you going to trade them for future assets that may well not be as good as the players you're getting? Or are you going to make positive trades out of them? And in four or five out of the seven cases of these players, they made negative trades with them. So Philly lost a lot of value that they had through the draft and the draft they ended up slightly underperforming expectations in anyway. And they also, they're an interesting case study as well for um, the draft lottery odds. So in 2014, they're the second worst team and they get the third pick. In 2015, they're the third worst team and get the third pick. In 2016, they are the worst team and they get the worst pick, the best pick, I mean, not third pick. They got the number one pick, the best pick. And then in 2017... They are the fourth worst, but they got the third pick, and then they traded up with the future 14th pick to get the number one pick. Obviously, it's not just three and 14. It was three and a future first, which became the number 14 pick because it turns out, pretty sure it was Sacramento. I'm pretty sure it was Sacramento's next pick, if I remember rightly. And then Sacramento ends up doing pretty well that year. I might be wrong on that. That's what I seem to remember. But anyway... They ended up doing about as well. They lost a draft position in 2014 and they gained the draft position in 2017. But overall, they ended up a net zero in terms of where they were at the end of the season and the draft pick they got at the top. So they didn't even lose out on their draft position. They just didn't draft totally up to the standards that they would expect in terms of averages. And this is what they got. They ended up with, they had four top three picks. They had five picks in the top 10 in total. They had, what, nine first rounders and 18 second rounders in five years. And they they didn't crash out of expectations, but they underperformed. Still got, obviously, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and then made loads of negative trades around Mikhail Bridges, Jeremy Grant, Rashawn Holmes, which not traded. Sean Holmes was not traded. He was given away for cash. Let's get that right. Ridiculous. What the fuck, Philly? But that just shows you the ultimate tank job in NBA history because of they didn't get luck in the lottery. They didn't get luck in their draft picks. And they got very unlucky with trades. They ended up turning what is kind of the home run of um, tank jobs. They went full-on tank mode and by not getting super lucky with lottery odds or the players they drafted or obviously they got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, but I mean, they didn't get, they had two number one picks and two number three picks. They didn't get very lucky with the players they drafted and then they really fucked up trading. And this is what they end up with. With the ultimate tank job, this is still what you end up with. So this is just to put a final nail in the coffin, tanking does not work tanking the theory is lovely and we can focus on the survivorship bias we can say well san antonio spurs did it in 1997 look at them they're excellent there you can say you know uh, the rockets did it in the 80s and got ralph sampson and hakeem they actually didn't really tank that much when they got hakeem they really tanked for ralph sampson imagine if hakeem had never come over from africa and someone hadn't found hakeem and fucking, I don't think Sam Bowie would have been number one pick. I don't think they would have been that stupid. But, sorry, Portland. But 
they would have had a massive tank job just for Ralph Sampson. And then he gets injured and it blows a season's worth of tanking completely to shit. There's just, there's too many variables. Like this is, the things I can basically see from this is you need draft lottery luck. That is not a given. That is far less of a given today than it was 10 years ago. Now it's even harder to get that luck and it makes it far more random. Then you need draft pick luck. You need to pick the right players. You need to pick above, not just making the right choice. You need to do better than an average pick. So you can't even get the number three pick, the number four pick, the number two pick, the number eight pick in a row. You still need to overperform those positions like Dirk with the number nine pick, I believe it was. That's historically overperformance of a draft pick. You know, Steph Curry with number seven, historic overperformance. Michael Jordan, number three pick. What the fuck? You need that luck. Even with team, even with like the number one pick, you need the luck that you are getting a LeBron James, a Tim Duncan, a Shaq, a Hakeem Olajuwon. You need that, or you end up with maybe you know an Anthony Edwards who looks like he might become a really nice player in the league. It's probably not going to be a transformative player. And then you need to not trade away the good assets you get, the Mikhail Bridges, the Jeremy Grants, the Rashawn Holmes, not trade them away for other assets that aren't as good or in bad trades. That's the uh, that's the real elixir for all of this, that you cannot make, you cannot not get good lottery luck, not get good draft pick luck, and then with the luck that you do get, you give those away for pennies on the dollar. Like Mikael Bridges, Fazaya Smith, and a future first. What the fuck? What the fuck? Mikael Bridges, maybe a first team all defense player this year. You cannot do that. And finally, the finally, maybe the foundational part of these issues is, and this one I think is quite a common thing, but it's the culture of losing. And it's, I think, more more precisely, it's that by doing this, you are putting systems in place in your franchise that set you up to lose. And that historically and through the data shows that does less for setting you up to win than putting systems in place that set you up to win do. Which is a slightly complicated way, a roundabout way of saying that losing begets more losing you are more likely to win if you focus on winning, even with the draft, even with the fact that, generally speaking, the worst teams have the best luck in terms of getting a future number one pick, getting the best young players. There is just too much variability in that. Even though, historically speaking, the draft is actually pretty straightforward. The draft picks end up going... Over the totality of draft history, they end up going in about the right order, just about. But on a mac on a micro basis, draft to draft, in a little five year sample, the odds are just too crazy. You cannot do this. It's just it's ridiculous. It just does not work. Nothing can tell you it works. I haven't found anything personally that tells me it works. And any time I've found one that does, like the 97 Spurs, like the 03 uh, Cavaliers who were awful, 
who ends up getting LeBron. Those are actually, let me just see, how many was it? It was 12. 12 of these 186 teams, seasons that were below 25 wins, 12 of them ended up winning titles. 12 in the next 10 years. 6%-ish odds in the next 10 years. That is micro compared to the 27% for a team that doesn't tank. That is a huge disparity. And that automatically tells you maybe there is some um, kind of sample size bias in there. I'm willing to admit that these aren't the most robust samples, but they are also all the sample we have in NBA history going back to 1955. This is the entirety of it. This is the sample we have. And uniformly, tanking produces far worse odds of winning. Now, here's an interesting one as well. The San Antonio Spurs. The San Antonio Spurs from 2017 to 2020 had the 11th pick, the 18th pick, the 19th pick, three 29th, 29th picks difficult to say for some reason, three times the 29th pick, the 41st pick, two times the 49th pick, and the 59th pick. That's a lot of picks, and they're all not very good. From that, I would expect one starter slash all-star. The odds are about about two-thirds chance you get a starter, one-third chance you get an all-star. You should get one starter-level player. You should get three role players, and you should get six non-factors. So overall, you probably get four players for your rotation. One of them is either a starter or an all-star level player. These are five players they got in those drafts. DeJounte Murray, Derek White, Lonnie Walker, Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell. Perhaps none of those players ever end up being all-stars. I think... Lonnie Walker and Devin Vassell, maybe you can say they're not going to become real starters, but I think DeJounte Murray, Keldon Johnson, Derek White, Lonnie Walker, and Devin Vassell all have starter potential. That's Maybe I'm being uh, optimistic there. Maybe one of them flames out and they end up having four starters drafted. Out of a draft kind of period of picks where you would expect one starter to come out of it, they got four. And this isn't just some isolated incident. The San Antonio Spurs, according to Berkeley, uh, a paper I read from there, who they looked at specifically Winshares and Vorp, the two uh, most commonly used cumulative basketball reference advanced plus advanced stats. They used that and they kind of they mapped out draft picks. They came to very similar conclusions I did, which tells me uh, I did a good job there because the end of how their kind of their polynomial distribution graph that a graph where the line of best fit curves a bit like an S-shape is basically what that means. It's kind of S-shaped and polynomial distribution. Um, just for layman's, obviously, that's it's a lot more complex than that. It's a lot more complex than I understand, but that's a very simple definition of it. They, um, they found that the San Antonio Spurs are the team that most outperforms their draft position. So this isn't just some random sample size I used recently to say, look, the Spurs did this. That means other teams can do it. But the problem is the Spurs always do this. 
that's that's the crazy part. They they got lucky with the number one picks, the Tim Duncans, the David Robinsons. Those are found money. Those are just they are the best players coming out at a time when you get the number one pick and you got the luck to have the number one pick. And one of the two of the 10, 15, 20 best players ever at the, out at the same time. That's just luck. Tony Parker with the 28th pick. Maybe that's luck. Manu Ginobili with the 60th pick or whatever. Maybe that's luck. Maybe DeJounte Murray with the 29th pick is luck. Maybe Keldon Johnson with, I think that was the 29th pick as well as luck. Devin Vassell with the 11th pick, who's going a bit under the radar, but he looks really nice. Maybe that's luck. These keep happening. And I think they happen for three distinct reasons. They happen because the San Antonio Spurs invest in robust and talented scouting networks to really identify who the best players are, not just the best players when they're 18 and 19, but who the best, who, which players have the skills that will translate to the NBA and have the ability, the character, the hard work, the raw physical tools, the kind of the the, the diamond in the roughness X factor ability to develop into real NBA players. You need robust scouting networks and you need talented scouts that are able to given the freedom to do their work because they are professionals. They are, you know, scouts are really fascinating to me that how well scouts do generally is really fascinating to me that these guys, this is kind of potluck and scouts somehow turn it into, you know, an actual talents that they have is really impressive to me. I'm, I'm really interested in that whole process. You need to give them the freedom to be talented scouts in a robust network where they're entrusted to make these decisions, to travel the world, to watch, you know, Manu Ginobili play at, FI- at FIBA tournaments, to go to kind of smaller Euro League teams or smaller European leagues and scout out those players and find them and be willing to invest in those scouts. That's on just on the scouting side. Then you need to invest in training staff and development staff. I mean, the San Antonio Spurs are well known for, I forget the, the guy's name, but um, their shooting coach who developed like Manu's shot, Kawhi's shot, all these guys helped. They, they are, I've really blanked on the name now. I should have Googled it. I thought I might just remember it, but um, a shooting coach who's widely considered kind of the best shooting coach in the NBA or certainly in recent years has been considered the best shooting coach on a team in the NBA. You need to invest in that. You need to invest in strong training staff, strong development staff, strong coaching staff on top of talented scouting departments. And then you need to focus all of that and invest in the human beings and the players that you have in the building right now. The human beings you have in the G League, the young players that you've brought in with the 29th pick, with the 49th pick. You need to take time with them and develop them in ways that fit the organizational ethos, in ways that fit the team and that help them become better players, not just what can you do for me right now? Can you do X, Y, Z? No, go to the G League, become someone else's problem, come back, you haven't developed the way I wanted you to, get traded. The Spurs don't do that really. They invest in the human being 
and they invest in the potential of a player. And I think that's why they end up constantly overperforming their draft position. It's why Toronto constantly overperforms their draft position because they are organizationally excellent. And that is what is far more controllable. That is what you can action yourself as an organization to control the destiny of your draft picks, to control the destiny of the players in your organization, investing in infrastructure, human infrastructure and organizational infrastructure, and invest in the players themselves. That is the secret of creating championship teams. It's not getting high draft picks. It's not drafting superstars. It's not uh, making asset-driven trades. It's not putting in place structures that are going to lose you basketball games with the idea of winning basketball games in the future. Because the draft lottery, more than ever now, is based on luck. Draft picks are not only based on luck, not total luck, but draft picks in a lot of ways you get lucky. No one just drafts Nikola Jokic with the 41st pick. If the Denver Nuggets, the Denver Nuggets got lucky there. Like, if the Denver Nuggets thought he was Nikola Jokic, they would have drafted him with the 13th pick or whatever the fuck they had. You get lucky with your draft picks, and you need to not just get lucky and not fuck up a draft pick. You need to outperform what that draft pick should be worth. And then you need to not trade away value assets when they're still kids, when you don't know who they are, but you have to make decisions structurally for your team, for your franchise. Are you going to trade that your the guy you just drafted with your first round pick? Are you going to trade him for this other first round pick, later first round pick, plus a future first, maybe plus a future second? Are you going to make that trade now on draft night? And if you do, what are the odds you're going to fuck it up? They're pretty good. And are you going to put a culture of losing in place? That draft lottery luck, that draft pick luck, and that trade semi-luck, they are all mostly out of your control. Those just kind of happen. Like, it's there's no one in the world, certainly not in the basketball world, certainly I don't think in any walk of life, who can control all those variables, especially things like draft lottery luck, which is entirely out of your control no one can control those variables and the teams that have tried to like philadelphia have messed up they've not overperformed their draft lottery luck they've underperformed slightly their draft pick luck and then they've way underperformed their trade luck and at the end of the day you have the largest tank job in nba history becoming not even close to its potential or what it should become just because if one of these things fucks up the rest of it fucks up whereas if you focus on driving training driving development driving scouting networks to squeeze as much value as you can to have as much information as possible when you make those draft picks and to then invest in the players you have in the human beings in the building that is in your control that is something you can actually manage that is something you can both be accountable for and invest in everything else is just kind of luck in the air 
what Sam Presti has in OKC, in theory, we'll see because this is kind of... If Sam Presti can't build a absolute juggernaut out of the assets he's accumulated, I hope tanking just dies forever because tanking historically does not work. Being bad does not work. And the idea that you can then turn this tank job, you can be a Sam Hinky, do the process, your team will, you know, won't have enough fingers for the amount of rings you're going to win. It just doesn't work. It's never worked. And now it's less likely to work than it was 10, 20 years ago when it already did not work. Do not tank. Just try to win. And the odds are actually in your favor. Turns out trying to win games is the best thing you can do to win games. (laughs) And on that incredibly philosophically deep bombshell we're going to end this episode of by the numbers basketball please come join us over on the facebook group the overstated nba i think it's just overstated nba please subscribe to the overstated youtube if you're listening now you probably subscribed anyway but if you haven't please go do it because we have a lot of content on there that we're going to be releasing which is not going to come through our podcast feed we're trying to drive you guys over there please use the, the the code overstated at manscaped.com. That's overstated at manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping on any orders you make and have a wonderful week. Bye-bye.